This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. I have this problem, okay? I go and speak at schools and conferences about media and feminism. Bitch runs a whole program for colleges, and I'm one of the speakers. And let me just say that I am good at this, okay? I think I have some valuable skills and ideas to share, and I love meeting the super inspiring, brilliant, awesome activist students. But always, before I get in front of a group of people, no matter what I'm talking about, there's this nagging voice in the back of my head, a dark, kind of nauseous feeling that's just lurking there. And it says, you don't know what you're doing. You suck at this. They are going to find you out and they are going to know that you're a fake. Years ago, I learned that it's not just me that feels this way. And it's not just stage fright nerves either. This underestimating of your own abilities and feeling like a fake, despite totally not being a fake, is called imposter syndrome. A lot of people have trouble thinking of themselves as successful and competent, and gender plays a big role in that. Christy Walker, the founder of a British database for media outlets seeking female experts called Hersey, summed up imposter syndrome in a TEDx talk. It is a condition that leads women to believe that despite external evidence of their competence, they are frauds and do not deserve the success they've achieved. Any proof of success is dismissed simply as timing, luck, or uh, even a belief that they have conned everyone around them <laughs> into believing that they are more talented, more intelligent, and more competent than they actually are. Researchers Pauline Clance and Suzanne Imes first named imposter syndrome in 1978, but we still don't know a lot about the science behind it. There are so many things that play into how you feel about yourself and your work. But part of the issue here is certainly cultural, the way girls learn to distrust their own opinions and question their own competence, while boys are often taught to speak up, to lead, to swagger. In all kinds of ways, Race and gender impacts the way we put ourselves out there as knowledgeable. You can see it everywhere, from the way that boys and men are more likely to speak up in classrooms and business meetings, to the way men are more likely to be quoted as experts in print media, or asked to be the voices of authority on TV. A recent analysis of Sunday morning TV news shows by Media Matters showed that 61% of expert guests on TV morning news were white men. So on today's show, we have three stories about women who are screwing around with the idea of what an expert is. They're all putting themselves forward as experts, sometimes requiring actual imposter situations. Stay tuned. The Yes Men is a group of activist tricksters. It's mostly two white middle-class-looking dudes, Andy and Mike, and hundreds of behind-the-scenes helpers who pretend to be spokespeople for major companies and then do things that the companies should do but never would. Like, for example, pretending to be representing Dow Chemical and get on the BBC, 
claiming responsibility for the world's worst industrial disaster, a gas explosion that killed thousands of people in Bhopal, India in 1984. Here's a clip from the BBC. Um, a day of commemoration in Bhopal. Do you now accept uh, responsibility for what happened? Steve, yes. T today is a great day for all of us at Dow and I think for millions of people around the world as well. It's 20 years since the disaster and today I'm very, very happy to announce that for the first time Dow is accepting full responsibility for the Bhopal catastrophe. And sometimes in these pranks from the Yes Men, they impersonate companies to do actions that shame them. Like this June, the Yes Men set up a snow cone stand in New York City with an accompanying fake website that targeted Shell's plans to drill oil in the Arctic. People wearing bright red Shell uniforms offered passerby a taste of snow cone made from what they said was the last iceberg on Earth. How can we eat the last piece of the North Pole? Well, otherwise it's just going to melt away. Are you into it? Not at all. You want to eat some iceberg? Arum. One of those people behind the scenes of these stunts is Laura Nix, an artist and filmmaker who has helped document many of the Yes Men's pranks. She is the co-director of the new documentary, The Yes Men Are Revolting. Here's a clip from the trailer. So what's your name, sir? My name is Dick Impala. I'm with Environment Canada. You don't really work for Environment Canada, do you? Or in Uganda. Here, a flooded route means people die. Young people are aiming to overthrow the U.S. financial system. To record the stunts, Laura Nix often winds up having to impersonate someone herself, typically a conservative corporate news person. I talked with Laura Nix about what it's like to pretend to be a filmmaker so that she can be an actual documentarian. Some of the actions are really elaborate and it's basically like staging a small play, like a small guerrilla theater, a like a small piece of guerrilla theater. And uh, there's casting that's involved, there's costuming, there's hair and makeup, there's some technical requirements occasionally, there's issues about how do you get access to a location, and then there's this very um, difficult, um, at times, and very complicated scenario that involves the, the impersonation. Because, you know, what the Yes Men do is impersonate voices of authority in order to comment on voices of authority. So there's, you know, sometimes that process can go on for months when they approach people uh, under pseudonyms and carry on communication for a really long time. And then all of us who are involved in that also have to be uh, impersonating other people. So we have fake names, fake email addresses, fake cell phone numbers, etc. So it can get pretty crazy because you're trying to check and stay on top of your email while you're also trying to stay on top of your fake pseudonym email. <laughs> so one of the reasons why the yes men can pull off impersonating corporate figureheads as often as they can is so much about the way that they look. Like they look like white, middle class, corporate dudes, especially when they put on a suit and like refuse to crack a smile. So how does that impersonation play into your role as director? When you're out shooting them, do you try and look like a TV news person or something? I often get cast as the role in the role of a corporate TV producer or like some kind of corporate spokesperson. So we all end up dressing more conservatively than we normally do. And 
we wear our hair differently. We, you know, wear different shoes. I wear, I sometimes have to buy like an outfit that looks more conservative than what I might normally wear. Because when we walk into a scenario where we're not, you know, we're saying who we are, then it's not who we really are. It necessitates, you know, like really looking like a different person. I mean, I do not look in my real life. I don't look like a corporate producer for Halliburton or I don't look like a spokesperson for, you know, some kind of defense contractor. Um, so I have to kind of tweak my appearance and my presentation. And we all have to do that when we walk in. I'm always amazed by how crazy it is that the yes men are able to get away with what they're able to do. And so much of it has to do with the fact that they're white guys in suits. And it it really does make you aware of how many white guys in suits are saying completely insane things. And we just kind of take that as a matter of course on any given day. If you turn on the news, there's just, you know, hundreds of white guys in suits (laughs) saying crazy stuff. And they're able to get away with it because they're white guys in suits. So the yes men are playing off of that and, um, and, and they're, they're using their identity for another purpose. But I think it's, um, it's, it's definitely the case that if they were women or people of color, they would not be able to get access to the places that they get access to as easily, um, nor would they be able to say, I think the, some of the extreme statements that they make in public uh, without being questioned much more quickly. When you were working on this movie, were you worried about government or corporate surveillance? I would think you'd be worried about the companies who you were going after keeping tabs on you. I I think if they are watching us or um, if they are watching us or surveilling us, they'd also pretty quickly figure out that I'm not the one they need to be worried about. <laughs> um, um, yeah, I don't really worry about that for me. There was a moment in making this film that was kind of an interesting time. We rented the office from Praxis Films. Uh, Praxis Films is the company that Laura Poitras started, and um, she's, of course, the director of the movie Citizen Four, the Edward Snowden documentary. And because she had moved to Berlin, because she could not continue to make her work in the United States, her office in New York City was open, and she needed some people to rent it from her, and so we sublet her office from her. And her assistant told us, you know, you guys need to be just aware of the fact that the the office, you know, might have some surveillance, and you should be careful about using cell phones near windows. You should just be, you know, aware of kind of what you say in and around the space. And so we liked to make a lot of jokes about that while we were working in that office. And um, we just kind of assumed that maybe we were being watched. And, you know, I don't really know that if, if we were being watched by the NSA, they might be kind of looking at us and with amusement and like, what do these guys think we're doing? Or, you know, like we might be considered kind of clowns in a way. Um, But the yes men do have, experiences of being surveilled of a more serious nature. There was a spy company called Stratfor that's basically kind of like the Halliburton of the intelligence community. And they, after the Yes Men did um, an action against Dow Chemical in the second film, which caused $2 billion of Dow's stock price to be wiped out in a day, Dow 
um, hired Stratford to kind of monitor the Yes Men's activities because they wanted to know what they were going to be up to. And they monitored the Yes Men and they monitored a bunch of other um, activist organizations. And the people who found out about were actually um, WikiLeaks because they, WikiLeaks was doing um, a kind of a, a they, they, let's say the WikiLeaks basically came, it came into their knowledge, it came into their possession, a lot of emails um, about Stratford's activities. And they were the ones that informed the yes men, you guys are being spied on by this crazy spy company. Do you see your voice come through in these films at all? I came on as a director because we wanted to tell a personal story this time around and not just focus on them as these, you know, kind of cartoon-like superhero activist guys running around the globe fighting corporate greed, but tell a deeper story about what it's like to sustain a a life of activism over a longer time. And I also wanted to tell the story of their friendship, which is very inspiring to me and moving to me. And I think frustrating to them, but I think quite illuminating to many of us who've had friendships that last for a really long time and eventually change as you get older. And I wanted to make sure that this third film also had emotional content and wasn't just funny all the time, but had spaces where it could be sad or it could be wistful or it could be melancholic. And I think that, you know, at times it was hard for the yes men because they're more used to making a film that's just funny, funny all the time. And they would get really worried that the film wasn't funny enough, wasn't fast enough. And I think that's where you feel my voice the most is that the film I think has more emotional content this time around. And, and hopefully they come across as being more vulnerable human beings than they did before. And I think that's a more rewarding film experience, but I also think that there's a political message to that, which is that as activists, we feel like we're failing a lot. And on any given day when you're doing activism, you don't get the satisfaction of thinking, Oh, I've, figured out women's rights or I ended racism or we figured out climate change today, you mostly feel like you're just stuck or that you haven't made any progress or impact at all. And that's very normal and common for anybody who's doing any kind of activist political work. And rather than portray the yes men as being immune to those feelings, I wanted to have audiences see that they have those too and um, watch the yes men decide to keep going as a way to remind us that we all can keep going and we should keep going because being a part of these social movements is actually really energizing. And, and by the way, the way that we're going to probably be able to, you know, actually have impact and change this world. I, I really appreciate that message. Um, and I do think that working on these kinds of issues can make you feel like you're banging your head against a wall seven days a week. Right. <laughs> um, so, yeah. and I mean, the focus here is so much on the yes men having done this for 20 years, but you've also been doing this for 20 years. So how do you deal with feeling like you wish more had been done? Or how do you deal with like um, how shitty the world is despite your your decades of work to try and, and make it better? Is that something that you like 
how do you grapple with that on, on, a, on a daily basis as a filmmaker? There's, as a documentary filmmaker, it's, it's, it's kind of a ridiculous profession in a way. It's, it's very hard to sustain this over a long period of time. And the older you get, um, the more aware you are of what that means that you made this decision to do this for your life. And that, you, you know, you start to look back at that moment when you wonder, maybe I should have gone to law school or got a degree in education or something. And you think, wow, maybe that wasn't a bad idea. So I love what I do, but it is really challenging to, to keep going. And, and it can be very difficult to also look at the world that we live in and, and look at these like huge, enormous problems and feel like you can make a change or that your documentary film can make a dent. And I don't think that documentary films change the world, but I do think that we're a small part of changing people's awareness. And I think that we're a small part of shifting people's perception and opinions. And that's huge. And that's really all we can ask for is to be um, a part of that dialogue that, that helps people move forward on any given issue. Um, I, there's days when I feel incredibly hopeless and, you know, this week was a really tough one. Um, you know, looking at what happened in um, Charleston and Mm -hmm. looking at the kind of violence that's happening all over the country and all over the world. Um, The news about climate change is never good, but then I have to also be encouraged by what the Pope said this week. And I'm reading this newspaper thinking, did I just hear the Pope like basically say that capitalism is ruining the planet? I think I just heard the Pope say that. And, and then I get hope again. So I think, um, that's kind of what any day is like is that you, it's very hard to like look at what the bad thing was that happened and find the hope again. But then we also have to look for the news that is really showing progress in any given area and, and believe in that too. That was Laura Nix, director of the new documentary, The Yes Men Are Revolting. The film is out right now. You can watch it on Vimeo or iTunes or in select theaters around the country. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Just a brief break here to let you know that this show is produced by the team here at Bitch Media, an independent feminist nonprofit that's reader and listener supported. To help create this show and the important work we do, head over to bitchmedia.org and donate. Every little bit really helps, I swear. If you like the show, share it with your friends. We all know that the best way to find out about podcasts is from people you know. Okay, back to the show. At first glance, Just Between Us looks like any other YouTube channel, with two chatty friends making videos and answering random viewer questions. But the advice show is actually scripted, and it's really a guise for comedians Allison Raskin and Gabby Dunn to feature their comedy. The two comedians play caricatures, or worse versions of themselves, as they say, an odd couple with uptight, straight-laced Allison in contrast to Gabby's unapologetic, militant feminism. While casually lounging on an overstuffed couch, they field relationshipy questions like, 
how do I get better at sex? And how do you date a bi girl? But the pair have said that Just Between Us is more about showcasing two funny best friends than it is about answering viewer questions. But when useful relationship advice happens, it's often on point. This week we have a local question from Caitlin in California. Hey Caitlin! Do you think she heard me? Do boys like it when girls are funny? This question upsets me. Oh, every question upsets you. Maybe that's my whole problem. Maybe I'm too funny. I think you're the funniest person I've ever met. Really? Yes. I'm gonna be alone forever. I would rather you be funny, and I would rather be funny, than cater to some guy who doesn't like funny girls. Yeah, I guess I get that on an intellectual level, but you know, how much fun is it saying knock-knock jokes out loud to yourself? Who cares what guys like? Are you gonna live your life by what some guy likes? Bitch Media Associate Editor Amy Lamb sat down with Gabby and Allison to talk about being comedy partners, fake slash real advice experts, and what happens when a joke fails terribly. I wonder where did it come from because it's just the two of you sitting on a couch in somebody's apartment. You guys don't live together, right? No, no. In the origin of the show, we do. Yeah. It came from a place of desperation. Um, we were both frustrated with our careers and lives and wanted to be productive. And we thought, how can we be productive with the lowest production value? <laughs> yeah, I had one friend with a camera. And I had done some YouTube stuff, but I had nothing, like just vlogging stuff. And um, we were like sitting at a diner and we just were like, let's come up with what can we do? We'll answer stupid questions and you'll, we'll just make up the questions. And so the first few episodes is just Allison making up the questions. And um, yeah, and then it kind of also came from because we became friends really quickly and then we kind of got into it really quickly. It turned, like there was not really any small talk. So our conversations were already just like I was like, someone should be recording this because this is insane. Uh, and then it kind of grew from those two, the, the extremes of those two personalities. But why give advice? Because like, you two can kind of hang out together and talk about anything, but why choose like the route of giving advice, I guess? Well, the show is not about giving advice. That's the big ruse is that we're horrible at giving advice. Um, we wanted just a structure where we could really work on characters um, and have it with the format um, in order to like be successful on YouTube and with the web series, it's all about consistency. And so this was like a format that we knew we could do once a week religiously. Um, but yeah, honestly, the advice is not at all what the show is about. Talk. But you do, but you do give advice, and sometimes it's really good advice. <laughs> That's those are the episodes I hate the most. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Well, I think um, we we wanted a way to showcase the two characters like total different personalities uh and the reaction to stuff and how it kind of started out with allison as gallant and me as goofus and then it became like two goofuses uh that's the that's the trick that we pulled is that everyone was supposed to be like yeah i agree with allison gabby's out of her mind and then it kind of has slowly shifted to they're both out of their minds um which is great so i think like I feel more of a pull to give actual advice just because our fans are so young. But tr but a lot of times the, the episodes that are like sketches where we have a question and then we don't even answer the question are the ones that turn out better. Yeah, to me it's a comedy show and it's an odd couple comedy show. Um, and the, the questions are a way to, to highlight our differing opinions. Mm -hmm. Obviously we do some episodes because we do have like this wonderful audience um, that are more meaningful. Like we did one about 
my OCD and also about like Gabby's bisexuality and coming out and all that stuff. And so those are the times when we like kind of, I think we can still do it in a funny way, but more addressing the actual question. But other than that, we try to kind of keep it more like a character comedy show with this strange format of questions. This week, we have an international question that people all over the world want to know the answer to. So it's international and that it's both from another country and people... <clears throat> Marco from Indonesia. How do you know if someone likes you? Do you have a ring on your finger, Marco? I think if uh, you want to know if someone likes you, just ask them if they like you, right? Right, like, Gabby, do you like me? <laughs> a good way to tell if someone likes you is if they want to spend a lot of time with you. Ooh. If they come up with an excuse to see you all the time, for example, a web show. Well, I don't know. I don't know if that's true because I've had many boyfriends who almost never want to hang out with me. Um, but then in the end, they didn't like you. <laughs> well, can you describe like what your characters are for yeah, just between yeah. us? Uh, yeah, my character is um, sort of like neurotic and uh, anxious and also kind of abides by old school rules of what it means to be a woman and that marriage is the most important thing in the world and that uh, is kind of afraid of sex. Um, and then Gabby is the exact opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, so it's like heightened versions of ourselves. Like if we if if we had no self awareness, these are what these characters would be. So mine is also like just a, a in, just insane like um, very mili militant feminist, which I sort of am in real life. I'm more like sort my of. I'm more like my character than Allison is like her character. But yeah, like bisexual, sexually aggressive, um, very like into like. I don't know. I, I can't even say it's a character because this morning I opted out of the TSA screening and she was like, was that some sort of political protest? And I was like, you bet. Like, it's yeah, very... I'd say, I'd say Gabby's pretty much Gabby and I'm playing the worst version of myself five <laughs> years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So if Gabby's pretty much Gabby, but Allison, if, if you're sort of playing this caricature of yourself and because you, like, you're using your name and you are you on the show, like, do you worry that people will think this is actually you? All of the time. And then what, I mean, what do you get, what will you do with that? Uh, what I do is things like this, where you clarify. I also have a Tumblr, and on my Tumblr, I'm my actual self. On my Twitter, I'm my actual self. Um, yeah. I think that sometimes people think our show is a vlog, and I say that it's not a vlog. It's a scripted series. Um, I think one of the hardest things about doing a show like this is sometimes people are like, it's it, like you and Gabby are like, you're funny together. And it's like, we know, like, we're comedians, you know? So there's, like, a level of, like, misunderstanding that we don't understand what we're doing. And we do understand what we're doing. Yeah. Um, the worst is, like, condescension from, like, men in the industry, too, who are like, you guys are, like, you really got something. And we're like, yeah, we fucking know. Like, or we're just, you know, we're traditional comedy partners. And people yeah. think that we kind of, like, fell into this thing. But it's something that we've been working on and growing with and mm -hmm. figuring it out and personalizing. In that vein, I wanted to know more about, like, how do you put a joke together? Mm. How does that happen? Because, I mean, when I, like, like, I say, like I'm saying, when I watch your videos, it just seems like it just comes to you, you know? But, yeah. but if you're doing stand-up and you're, you have to, like, construct a joke and everything, like, how does that work? What's the process like? Um, some jokes are, like, handed to you, like a beautifully wrapped gift, and other jokes you have to, like, dig for them, and then they're never as good. <laughs> um, so yeah, a lot of times, I mean, I'm like that crazy person who I'm like talking to my friends, joking around that if someone laughs, 
a little harder than normal I go hmm and then I write it down on my phone or in my notebook and you just like keep a log of like what's working what's not and then I get Gabby is this funny is this funny is this funny and I'm like yes it's funny how is this is this funny yes it's funny but like I she also like carefully constructs her tweets too like she'll like spend as much time like carefully constructing a tweet than anybody I've ever seen do it. Garrett does it too. My boyfriend will sit and construct tweets. Who has a, who's got more followers? Is it? It's, it's you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think, um, I think it comes from a lot of places. I mean, honestly, I think it, there are some people, no offense, who are never going to be funny. Um, yeah. I think it's an innate thing. But I, I think it's the most similar to something like a musical ability. Like you have to have that spark and then it's something that you honestly have to harness and practice and get better and just like keep doing. Um, I'm like a much better joke writer now than I was a couple years ago. Me too. Um, yeah, and then it, it like it's got to come from like a place of truth and things that are funny and then you save things and wording is very important wording for written stuff it's like obviously and then in just between us I mean a lot of it is also just delivery and figuring out the best way to delivery, deliver it using weird words uh saying things in a weird way pronouncing things weird and like doing like I think in just between us a lot of it is like shocking the other person saying something to like surprise the other person I think also a lot of what works in Just Between Us is our pacing and that we have very different pacings. Like Gabby, I yell at her all the time, we'll just ramble and go on and talk forever, you know? And like, if we were both that, it wouldn't work. And if we were both just like one-liner, 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 it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a balancing act. In terms, so I, like, I'm talking a lot about your successful jokes and things that like I loved and cracked me up, but I'm wondering if there are like, not just from Just Between Us, but in your stand-up or other comedy things, if you had like a joke that you did or that you thought was going to be successful, but it totally bombed and what happens when that happens or what was that joke? Oh, this is going to be shock. Maybe not. There's a, I'm, this is a shocking, I'm so glad that there was no Twitter or anything when I was first starting because when I did stand up in college, my jokes were like misogynist. Like my jokes were like very anti-feminist. Um, I had, th- I had this sort of, what I call the Tina Fey brand of feminism, which is like that where I thought that because I had glasses and wore cardigans, I was better than other girls. And but I like would have called myself a feminist, well, that is but a I was real so burn wrong. on Tina Fey. It is. Well, she hates sex workers, and she's she's like got she's real backwards about her feminism. But anyway, so I I um, ha- felt that way too, and um, and I thought that I had to like be part of the boys in order to like succeed instead of just being like oh they're not funny either so a lot of my jokes were like now I'm like oh god these were I these were very like I would never say that now so I think you start out wanting to like impress people and then you have to and then you're like wait a minute let me do some critical thinking and like okay this is this is what I really feel or this is like more me rather than just like let me say the thing that boys will laugh at. So that is a dark period. And they did well with dudes, but oh boy, they were not good. I bomb all the time. Um, 
Like, I mean, you know, you do open mics and you're writing new jokes every week. And I'm not as active in stand-up as I used to be. But, yeah, I bomb constantly. And then you have shows and it bombs. And then the next night you do the same jokes and it does great. And it's, you know, you can't blame the audience. A lot of times it's like how committed I am to the joke, what mood I'm in, my delivery of that joke. Um, Yeah, all the time I I bomb. (laughs) So what do you do? I mean, I can't even imagine standing there and being in a room full of people and you you just like put your, you literally just oh, put yeah. your workout and then you're standing there and like nothing like how does that feel oh, i guess you just, you just keep going you kind of black out yeah it's terrible i mean it's awful it's yeah. really terrible what i i think one of the biggest things for me is if i can bomb on a joke and then my next joke can do well is like a really big sign of like getting better yeah um, it's like not giving up in the middle of your set just because something didn't go over well um But yeah, it hardens you. You have to be hardened. And that's my journey that I'm actively working towards and failing at. You have like a weird out-of-body experience where you're like, where a part of me before every show, I go, I go, it's fine. It's 10 minutes. It's 10 minutes. And then after that, you can eat whatever you want. You know what I mean? Like, and then, and then after that, you can drink water and breathe and you'll be like, I'm just like, how hard is 10 minutes? You sit on your couch and watch a show for an hour. 10 minutes is nothing. You're going to be great. Like, that's what I say. Like, if it goes badly, you have a bad 10 minutes in a 24 hour day. And like, I have to like talk myself out of like thinking that it's a big deal. Are you just going to go out there? You're going to talk to some people for 10 minutes? Everybody could do that. Like, just like, not like weirdly therapizing yourself. That was Amy Lamb talking with Gabby Dunn and Allison Raskin, whose show Just Between Us can be found on YouTube. You are listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about ideas of what it means to be an expert. Violet Blue is a journalist who sniffs out interesting stories about technology, controversy, and identity. Her work has been especially important in recent years as it becomes clear how often women are harassed online and at risk of having their data exploited. Studies show that online privacy is in a large part a gendered issue. A whopping 26% of young women who use the internet have been stalked online. That's compared with just 7% of men. Women are also more likely to be physically threatened online. 23% of women ages 18 to 24 have been threatened online with physical violence, compared to 8% of men. For her new book, The Smart Girl's Guide to Privacy, Violet Blue works with attorneys, psychologists, and tech employees to put together a practical guide to online privacy that doesn't require a huge amount of background knowledge. Social media companies don't really want you to be an expert on how to protect your data. I mean, of course, they're not wishing stalking or harassment on anyone, but they want you to share as much as possible. That's good for business. So the book is an empowering one. It's a straightforward how-to guide for protecting your privacy and undermining the various social media settings that want you to share potentially intimate details with the world. Even as somebody who grew up on the internet, there was plenty of basic info in the Smart Girls Guide that I didn't know. I followed some of Blue's steps in the book and was surprised to find that my home address could be found in about 30 seconds of internet searching. Luckily, it was a home I'd moved out of a few years ago. With that in mind, I found the book alarmingly handy. 
I talked with Violet Blue about changing the idea of digital privacy and how diversifying the tech industry is crucial for creating a safer internet for all. So you start out your book um, by describing internet privacy as a self-defense move, like uh, like a self-defense class that everyone should take in order to protect themselves. Can you tell me more about framing online privacy in terms of self-defense? It's the same sort of protection that you take as you would when you go outside or when you do anything going about your sort of ordinary life. And I don't think that, you know, people just don't think about going on the internet the same way. Um, And I think that it's a consciousness shift in that direction will definitely be towards everyone's safety. So, you know, it's, you need to be thinking about, you know, um, would you trust, you know, would you trust the man on the street? You know, would you trust, you know, the person who's, got a clipboard and is asking you for your, you know, your phone number and your address to sign you up for some interesting offers. You know, you wouldn't say yes to anything like that because it's a privacy risk and who is this person? But on the internet, we've sort of been lulled into this false sense of security, a lot having to do with social networking sites that giving up our privacy and our our identities and our information is sort of a necessary exchange in order to use these services or enjoy these services. And it's, it's, it's a sort of a false question, you know, um, because a lot of people just aren't aware of what they're getting into, but it's time that we think about it in, in the same terms, you know, would you trust a strange company with your information? Would you trust a strange man on the street, you know, with a photograph of you? And once you start to think about it in those terms, you start to realize, Oh, okay. you know, I need to shift the way that I'm approaching all of this stuff. And um, and to sort of tighten tighten up security, tighten up your practices around what you do with your information. These days, there is such a low expectation of privacy online. We assume that uh, Google and Facebook and basically every other company is gathering our data and mining it. So I think it's interesting that in this book, um, how you reframe Internet privacy from something that's an impossible ideal to something that is possible and that we should defend. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting um, that you mentioned that because at the beginning of this month, a new report came out um, that really sort of shattered the myths around around the, the alleged trade-offs and the way that marketers are misrepresenting American consumers and opening them, them up to exploitation um, to themselves and to other companies. And the study is called the trade-off fallacy. And what's really interesting about it is that it just completely blows open the idea that that um, that people need to trade privacy for security or that people, you know, are okay with trading privacy for services. And what they found was that the, a majority of Americans have been giving up their data simply because of, well, of two reasons. One, that they're not aware that they can do anything else. They simply believe they don't have a choice. And the other reason that they're been getting, they've been giving up their data is because they're resigned to it. In, in other words, they don't think that they can do anything else that it's already out there, they feel helpless about it. And this has been something that marketers and, you know, through through their extensions in social media networks have been sort of putting forth this this philosophy that this is something that people willingly do or it's something that people might want to do in order to get better recommendations or in order to get, you know, served, quote-unquote, better ads and things like that. And so finally, something like the study is putting down some really firm ground that no, people don't want to be doing this. And now that they're becoming aware of what's happening, 
they're they're getting pretty upset about it. You know, this is not something that they would have consented to had they known. So it's um it it draws a really interesting line in the sand in this entire discussion. That's a really good point, and I think that part of it is how it often feels safer online than it actually is. Like unless you're being targeted by people who specifically want to hurt you, whether they're like stalkers or trolls or political groups, you know, putting yourself out there online um, can feel pretty safe. Websites basically present a veneer of we're protecting you. Don't worry about it. Don't even look at those privacy settings. So how do you talk to people who care about their privacy but feel resigned to having their data taken by companies? Well, it's um, it's interesting. Um, I just one of the pieces of, the, of what you're talking about there is that um, one of the things that this study found that I just was talking about is that over 60% of the people that they, that they surveyed and that they used in the study actually thought that a company's or like, or Facebook or any, any, you know, privacy policy that actually by the words privacy policy, that that actually meant that the company was protecting their privacy as a policy not that that policy actually was detailing the ways in which they're giving up their privacy. Um, so it's, it's like there's a, a, lot of, a lot of sort of willful misdirection, I think, going on here um, with companies that are sort of playing it to their advantages to keep people a little bit in the dark. And, you know, at, once people start learning about kind of what's going on here, and, and hopefully they're not learning about it because they're finding out the hard way, which unfortunately increasingly people are, um, it's, it can be pretty sobering, you know, I've been talking to women who've read my book and they're like, oh my God, like this is, I had no idea. This is kind of scary. But what's been helpful about the book is that it's giving them concrete tools to be able to go, oh, I didn't know this was a risk. Here's exactly how we can address it. So it's, you know, in the same way that you wouldn't ride in a car without a seatbelt. It's, it's sort of the same philosophy with, okay, here are some things that you just sort of need to do, you know, put on the, put on the seatbelt, put the helmet on before you get on the motorcycle. You know, these are, are the sort of things that we need to be doing before we get on the internet or before we upload a photo for our profile and things like that. So it's, you know, as, as scary as it is to find out what's possible and what's happening, it feels even better, I think, to be able to be getting control over it at the same time, which is exactly what the book does. There's nothing in the book that tells you about something scary that you can't do something about. It's funny because this is an issue that I wish I didn't have to do anything about. I wish that companies would protect my privacy if I used their services. But instead, it falls on me as a consumer, basically, to be wary of companies and protect myself in many ways. There's a quote I like uh, that I talked about on a previous podcast from a technologist named Julia Angwin, who said, if you're getting something for free, you're paying for it in some way. I, I agree partially. I mean, I think that, yes, absolutely. If, if, if something is free, if you're getting to use something for free, you are paying for it in some way. And just that realization is a huge consciousness shift for a lot of people. Um, you know, because companies don't get where they are by being nice. <laughs> um, but at the same time, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's sort of an all or nothing when it comes to having to know every single thing about what's going on with your privacy. Um, part of the reason that I wanted this book to happen was that everything that I've been able to find on privacy that is helpful for consumers is extremely technical and requires 
a lot of acumen, like knowing tech jargon and, you know, knowing, you know, hacker terminology and things like that. And the goal with the book and the people that I worked with on the book was to make it as simple and as easy as possible and to continue to simplify these processes into like easy steps so that people don't have to become experts. You point out in your book that people who design technology are overwhelmingly male and don't often take into account that these issues will come up for half the people that use the technology. Can you speak to how that and gender has shaped the lack of privacy in our online technology? Absolutely. I think the biggest thing that's missing from today's privacy conversations is the role of gender in privacy and privacy expectations. And the simple fact of the matter is that straight men perceive privacy completely different than everyone who's not them. (laughs) And they have overwhelmingly been the people who have developed, shaped, and implemented the technologies that we use. And that's not any sort of malice on their part, but it's a matter of a lack of understanding that the fact that over half the people that use their services, women, LGBTQ people, are going to be targeted. And that this entirely huge percentage of the people that are going to be using their services, are um, they bear target status. And a lot of younger people don't realize that they bear target status until they get targeted and attacked. But, you know, understanding target status versus non-target status really completely changes the way anybody uses a system. So one point here is that if there was better gender diversity in the tech industry, we might see a shift in the way that these products and services are designed to take into account gender-based harassment. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're seeing systems trying to grapple with that now. I mean, look at the struggle that Twitter's having, you know, as an established company that has all of its rules and everything in place. And then, you know, they're, they're getting hit with these huge incidences of targeting and stalking and harassment on a really large scale. And so they're having to take the system that was implemented one way and try to figure out how to how to shape it to be able to protect the people that use the system. And they're having an enormous struggle with it because these systems just aren't built with that in mind, you know. Um, and the fact that their their structures and their rules and everything are going to be gamed and used against them. Um, if they had been built with that in mind, I think that we'd be seeing a different a different situation altogether. You know, we would be seeing a, a much more um, established and a much more understanding and an abuse department with a lot of acumen around the ways that systems are used against people and the way that they can be exploited in order to harass, you know, the the problems that they were having with sock puppeting and making a fake account that would have already been something they had taken into consideration because that's a very typical tactic, you know, that's used in these systems. So I have to ask, do you miss, do you miss the early days of the internet when it was more possible to be anonymous? You know, I I never really thought that it was possible to be anonymous online, but I think that that's because I, I understood how these things worked a little bit more than other people. I mean, also not a lot of people think about the world in terms of the fact that, you know, when you go to the DMV and they get all your information and they take your thumbprint and they take your photograph, there are people working at the DMV that are creeps, I'm sure, you know, because everywhere there's going to be somebody. And it's just going to, it's like that at every system, every institution, every business. So I've, I've never thought that, you know, I'm going to be safe to give all my information to Facebook. I've never, you know, or that even as, as strong and robust as the security of a, of a, 
an online banking system is going to be, there's always going to be a person behind there somewhere, you know? And so, you, you know, I just have always proceeded through the internet uh, in the same way as, as with life, just very carefully and very cautiously. The only thing I miss about the older days of the internet is the creativity and the feeling of freedom that we had. And that I think has a lot to do with the fact that we do feel less safe online. Um, there's, you know, people are, are getting less and less comfortable with free expression online because they're worried about the ways the companies are watching them. They're worried about, you know, what's being recorded and what might be saved later. And, you know, there are just lots of less places where, you know, creating art and being able to create silly, goofy videos and put them up and not worry about it later. There are less and less places like that which in, in its own way speaks to the popularity of things like Snapchat and WhatsApp and things like that, because it's a, it's a, disappearing, um, it's a disappearing place. So clearly people should go and buy your book to get all the information to protect their security. But if someone is listening to this right now, what would you recommend they do to protect their privacy within the next 15 minutes? In the next 15 minutes, well, definitely um, using quotes, Google your name and be sure to check the images tab. Google your phone number, Google your home address, Google your social security number. Do um, go uh, get um, a piece of tape or post it or go to something like privacystickers.org and get some stickers to put over your webcams because software to hack webcams is really cheap and really easy to find on the black market. And when that's used, they can, uh, people can record you or take pictures of you without the little light going on. So just cover that up so no one can do anything like that. Um, activate the password lock on your phone, your laptop, and your tablet, because if any of that got stolen or ended up in someone else's hands and it wasn't locked, they might be able to get into your account, like if you kept yourself logged into Facebook or something like that. Um, also, log out of Google, log out of Facebook, log out of LinkedIn, log out of Twitter, and view your profiles as an outsider or view them as someone else and take some notes and then go back and adjust your privacy settings accordingly. Being an expert, whether you're a real one or faking it, isn't just about knowing a bunch of stuff. It's about claiming the title of knowledgeable person, about feeling empowered and supported and saying, yeah, actually, I know about this. I'm good at this. I have skills I want to share. I try to keep that in mind when I feel like an imposter. Be an expert. People want to learn from you. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. Ooh,